What are you going to do, Commissioner? There's only one thing we can do. Batman! Sir, it's the bat film. Yes, Commissioner. Batman. We'll be right there. Biff, bam, pow. This is Batman land. Be careful. Maybe a trap. Each week, we discuss the 1966 Batman TV show. We're Batman and Robin, the crime fighters. Discussing the episodes to air this week on SBS Vice Land. My name is Dan Barrett, and as the clock ticks towards midnight, I'm joined this week by my co-host, Nick Bassine. Let's go, Robin. Nick, how you doing? Ready to turn into a pumpkin, Dan. <laughs> That's a midnight thing. Because it's a midnight thing. Yeah. We're also joined here by... I'm actually really excited to have Richard in here. So it's Richard Gray. He's the editor of DVD Bits. Uh, he's a contributor at Newsarama. But probably more important for this, he's the author of Moving Target, The History and Evolution of Green Arrow. Richard, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Now, you have written the book about Green Arrow. The book. It's the only one that'll ever happen. Like, there really are no other books about Green Arrow other than, you know, the comics about Green Arrow, but... Yeah, look, I was really surprised that, that no one else had actually written one. The character's been around for 75 years, uh, almost as long as Batman and Superman, mm. uh, has appeared in most of their books, and has been a, a staple part of the, the DCU for all that time. And uh, I've been a huge fan for the last, I guess, 20 years or so. Uh, yeah. So I thought, someone's going to write this book. It probably should be me. Yeah, when I grew up reading comics and discovered the Green Arrow character, I was excited by the fact that he was quite different to the rest of the DC characters, in that the DC characters are a little bit more sort of iconic, a little bit more mythic, but he's very human and he's very grounded in his politics, which mm-hmm. played a very big role in his character from the 1970s onwards. And it's just kind of interesting thinking about him as that character, because when he initially debuted, he was more or less a Batman ripoff character and was that way for the first 20 years until they found that What do you mean is it, he was a Batman ripoff? Uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit further in. What? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what are you uh, talking about? He had an arrow car, an arrow cave, a sidekick named Speedy, and nothing like Batman. Did he have nothing. an arrow cave? He had an arrow cave. It makes no sense, but he had oh, an arrow Jesus, cave. Jesus, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit. First of all, we are going to talk about the 1966 Batman TV show. We're looking at two episodes here featuring the Clock King, I think one of our favorite villains, <coughs> You're marvelous, Clock King. Uh, we've got the Clock King's Crazy Crimes, which aired on the 12th of October, 1966, and the Clock King Gets Crowned, which aired the day after, on the 13th of October, 1966. Now, this is a very notable episode for two reasons. One, co-written by Bill Finger, who's the co-creator of Batman, and depending who you talk to, oh, is right. often considered to be mm. the actual real creator of Batman. Not, so it's, not Bob Kane. Well, Bob Kane had his name down as the creator and came up with the idea there should be a guy who wears a costume and called the Batman, but kind of Bill Finger stepped in and did the rest of the heavy lifting from that point. The rest of the mythology, the um, as with parents comic- getting murdered and bats coming in through the window. Yeah, and I think created Robin and mm. pretty much everything that you kind of know more or less to be a Batman is from Bill Finger and his couple of years running the shop. But it was all credits of Bob Kane. Right. Yeah. Why else are these episodes interesting? Well, also interesting. And look, I'd like to say this is really amazing planning on my part, but also in part slight coincidence, uh, the Clock King is actually a Green Arrow villain who was co-opted mm. for the Batman TV show. So, you know, it's a double you know, benefit to have Richard in the studio. Yeah, I actually went back and read the issue or read bits of the issue that he debuted in. And there's a lot of alarming similarities between this episode that we're talking about. Certainly the end, the climax of the first episode yeah. that we're talking about and the climax of that, that first appearance as well, particularly in Hourglass involvement there as well. Okay. Really? Mm. Did you bring that in? I didn't. Oh, that's Sorry. unfortunate. Um, but you have Google in front of you. I don't know. <laughs> 
did you know just by his name that he was in a Green Arrow villain? Yeah, like I knew Clock King was was definitely one of those characters because I part of writing the book I read all the issues through because yeah. you know that's what you did. Sure. And Clock King came up once or twice very early on in the piece, and then there was like a twenty year break, almost twenty year break, and then someone said, mm, "Let's revive him," and there was really no point. The original Clock King in the comics is a guy in a leotard with a clock for a head. <laughs> Uh, so I actually think that the Batman 66 version is a slight improvement on the comic book version. Man, that's actually a bold statement. Yeah. Yeah. Given when you watch these episodes, it's a huge statement, I think. Yeah. I should say, these weren't terrible episodes, but at the same time, I think there's been a few better episodes recently. It's tough to get on board when you, there isn't some familiarity with the villain, with the possible exception of the bookworm, because mm. it was Roddy McDowell. Yeah. But the mm. Clock King, you know, I, I have no connect. you know, I, it just seems pretty goofy and... Um, out of context. And did you know the actor Walter Slezak before you watched this? I knew the name, but I when I looked him up, I, I actually couldn't recognize him. He's played Geppetto, apparently, in a 57 production of uh, Pinocchio. He, he does look in, like Geppetto. He was mm. in Sinbad, The Sailor, which yeah. I have seen a long time ago. Uh, probably best known for being in Hitchcock's film Lifeboat. Which I've seen, but I don't remember him in it. Yeah, so he's got this extensive Hollywood career where he started out in silent films, made the transitions to talkies. So it's a really extensive filmography, but I mean, a lot of films and shows that I didn't really know. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but Nick, as is the case with every episode of this, I watched it. I didn't entirely understand the plot. What happened this week? Well, first, I'd like to point out that I think they kind of fell down with the uh, with naming these episodes. The Clock King's Crazy Crimes? It just kind of seems kind of lazy. Especially considering Clock King's Crazy Crime should be uh, crazy with a C and then crimes with a K, like Clock King, if you're going to yeah, go for that alliteration. Something. Yeah. something. yeah, absolutely. All right, anyway. Um, <laughs> while shopping for diamonds, an old lady gets gassed by a clock. The knockout gas that criminals use came from an antique clock. The Clock King is back, but the police won't do anything about it. They don't do anything about anything on this show. I fear we're in over our heads, Chief O'Hara. So they call Batman and Robin and track him to a drive-in and then see him in disguise on TV at an art exhibition. Holy masquerade. It's Clock King. Clock King steals a famous Salvador Dali painting. Isn't it beautiful? And then Batman and Robin show up. You can only fool some of the people some of the time, Clock King. To try to stop him, but they're easily thwarted by some clock coils that make a creepy boing sound. The dynamic mule caught in the coils of time. Clock King's hideout uh, happens to be right above where Sammy Davis Jr. rehearses, luckily. Hey, you guys come and catch my act sometime. I dig yours. They're paralyzed by some watch oil on the floor, get gassed, stuffed into an hourglass, which they escape by rolling themselves into traffic. Then the Clock King tries to steal some watches at Wayne Manor, but he's tracked down to some clock tower where he's beaten into submission i lost uh you know i'm I'm not totally sure what happened either focus drifted at this point yeah yeah i had some trouble at the end there (laughs) i was actually fine with most of the plotting i just didn't quite understand the art exhibit and how that came about and how batman and robin found their way to the gallery it was all a bit much and there's some clock with a special button on it that they need to get and it got very confusing yeah, so let's break down the episode. There are a couple of moments that I think we should discuss. We probably don't need to go too deep into these two episodes, though, I would imagine. What are you talking about? Amazing. I think we all know. The way you two figure that out, I could have never done it. I really thought it was interesting at the beginning where you've got the great scene where Dick and Bruce are there having to make an excuse to get rid of Aunt Harriet so they can go off and do their Batman gear. This week, they didn't even make an effort to come up with some sort of rationale to eradicate Aunt Harriet from the scene. Rather, they just sort of patronize her and sort of push her out the door. Like, there was no storyline with the two of them having to go off fishing. There was no 3D chess happening. There was nothing. 
at this point with all the excuses and she's just so nosy. I fully expect them to just start rolling their eyes. Just get get out of here, Aunt Harriet. <laughs> you We're know, busy. We're busy. You know what's really going on here? Come on, out the door. We've got a moment where Alfred mentions as soon as Aunt Harriet's out of the picture to check out the bat phone. And I think this is the most blatant uh, scene that we've actually seen where Alfred said, hey, you know, the bat phone's ring. Head yeah, on over right. there. Usually it's sort of whispered, a stage whisper, much the same way that Bruce and Dick were stage whispering at the end of the episode. Alfred really let me down in this episode. Um, there's some point where Aunt Harriet was in trouble. She was screaming for help. Alfred! All he could manage was a, you called, madam? You called, madam? She's about to be murdered by the clock king. But he was busy trying to fire off the uh, signal that he had on he's his belt. his little belt buckle thing that he pressed a button on. He, he, he knew what he was doing. I, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence in him. Okay, now I got a little bit concerned with him firing off the alarm in his belt, where Mm. essentially, if you think about, say, Superman, he's got his best pal, Jimmy Olsen, Mm. who has a very similar device as part of a wristwatch deal. If Superman's, uh, like, traveling through Gotham City for some reason, will he get confused by the signals coming through? (laughs) Well, I mean, it couldn't be the worst thing in the world if if Superman turned up at that point. I mean, it would help. Yeah, definitely. This, This was, after all... The biggest clock, 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 that's a hard thing to say. The biggest <laughs> clock crime of the clock, of the clock king's distinguished career. <laughs> Look, I'm very impressed with how you said that because it could have gone very wrong. <laughs> now, the scene that I actually really liked was when they were in the art gallery. There's a guy named Fred Forbes who hosts the What's New in Art segment on the GC TV TV It's a network. classic segment. Yeah, classic segment. I find it interesting. It seems to be a live segment where they cross lives to find out what's happening in art. Good afternoon, Gotham City viewers. This is your roving TV reporter. TV would be a better place for it if there was more of that going on. Now, it's a pop art exhibit taking place, which is very fitting because it's Batman. Mm. Now, the guy who played uh, Fred Forbes is this guy named Jerry Doggett. Uh, Jerry Doggett had a few TV appearances around the place, but he was on TV all the time because he was the announcer for the Dodgers. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Good and work. as a bit of TV trivia, uh, his name, Jerry Dogger, was the inspiration for Chris Carter when he was naming John Dogger, the guy that replaced uh, Fox Mulder in the X-Files for the last few seasons. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. this is the most influential episode of television <laughs> in the history of television. Look, I mean, it's certainly up there. Top yeah. five. That's right, Your Highness. You've done what nobody else could have done. What do we think of the Clark King as a villain? He's, he's fabulous. I mean, anyone who can get away with a cape. <laughs> that well and has and has an assistant specifically to give him said cape and yeah. that is is top five villains for me also a totally. relatively new assistant as well because his previous assistant had left working for the clock king to start working at the dunbar drive-in diner <laughs> oh yes thelma sorry batman you can't win them all she quit last week i think she went back to her hometown in the midwest i found it fascinating they go to this diner and the idea was to meet the woman who was working there and previously mm. you know clock king's mole but when uh, talking to her, like, essentially, I thought the revelation would be that she's the girl that's gone back to work for the Clock King because she'd stopped working at the diner two weeks previously, which to me syncs up with when the Clock King started his raging campaign of crime across Gotham City. But not the case. Uh, Thelma Timepiece, I'm not sure if that's a birth name or not, she just stopped <laughs> working there, which gave us a moment to learn about the Bat Burgers that are on sale at the it's diner. Bat Burgers? This show... <laughs> I mean, some of this, some of this plotting is, is pretty ridiculous. I mean, why why do they have to go there if she's just not going to be there? What did they learn? They just had an or, they had orange aid, which is disgusting, by the way. They made it a double too. Oh, that was gross. Yeah, and it, it certainly doesn't go with a burger. Why would you? 
soda, like well, a yeah, Coke to be fair, or something. Have you tried a Bat Burger? No, that's true. Yeah, they might so, put something on there that goes yeah. with the orange aid. Yeah. Very presumptuous of Batman to believe the Bat Burgers are named after him. It yeah, could be could anyone. Be, yeah. Not just pure Batmeat. Bat yeah. Well, I mean, it could be Batmeat also. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I had some trouble with the Clock King's. Uh, he seemed to have some sort of perversion when lots of uh, clock chimes go off. Mm. He seemed to have an orgasm. Well, chronophobics aren't going to do well with this episode at all because it's constant ticking and chiming. Yes, and, yeah, that's yeah. true. But he's he's into it. But he's the clock king. He's some kind of clock, people. clock sex pest. <laughs> uh, I didn't quick. read that into the episode, but, you know. Oh, he might as well have been wearing a sign. I'm okay, very, no, going, fair enough. I'm going to very quickly change the topic. What? Uh, you know that teenage <laughs> girl who was very excited to see Robin pull up outside the diner? Yeah, very excited. Mm. Uh, she has an extensive Batman history as well in that she makes a second appearance in the Batman movie where she plays the character Teen Girl, uncredited. She's the one who said, isn't Robin too much? That one? That (laughs) That would be the one. So I believe she has five credited roles, and one of them I don't feel comfortable talking about on a Batman-based podcast. Oh. Oh. What is it? Oh, there's nothing sort of too sorted. Snuff film? It's not a snuff (laughs) film. I really love those moments where Batman and Robin pull up somewhere and... Teenage girls go nuts <laughs> for Robin. Which happens it's more than you funny. think. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I really like that. Makes me wonder why I'm wearing pants at all. No, well, you know? uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it occurs to me, by the way, that your name is halfway if, to if, if I had Dick a, Grayson. If I had a son, he would be Dick Gray's son. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I know. I don't know why I don't just have a child, just to capitalize on that fact. Now, you're a modern man. You're a man who's an adult at this stage. Yes. At any point, have you gone by the name of Dick? No, I haven't actually. Hmm. Ever. I don't think there's been Rich? any abrev. Very few people abrev my name. Like it's in always a, been Richard. A, Australia abbreviates everything. I know. I'm not Richo or Richie or any of that. Richo. <laughs> Richo. <laughs> or any variation. Now of you're Richo. Now I'm Richo. I love it. On this podcast, I will be Richo. That's fine. <laughs> Can I ask you both a question about the ethics of Batman and Robin with their various fight scenes? In the art gallery, how many pieces did they destroy in the effort to save that one <laughs> I actually art piece? Was thinking that the whole time. I mean, what? to be fair, it wasn't great art. Also true. But they, were, they seem to have a few good pieces out back. Yeah. It but is you, inconsistent with the, normally they're very conscientious about everything. Yeah. So it's weird. Mm. It was very weird. Like, there were just pieces being thrown everywhere, henchmen being clocked. Um, oh, and <laughs> sorry, clocked, obviously, intentional pun. <clears throat> Um, speaking of the henchmen, there was that one henchman who played, I think it was Second Hand, was his henchman name. Uh, did either of you cotton on to what the deal was with this guy? Is he also a clock sex pest? Uh, I'm going to just maybe move past that question <laughs> and point out the actor. His name was Michael Pate. He's an Australian actor. Oh. Okay. Hey. And probably best known as playing Vic Madden in the series Matlock Police, which was what? a very popular show in the 1970s here. I have a feeling Matt, I handed After him. Matlock, the... No. The one with... The town that they policed in was called Matlock, and so it was Matlock Police, whereas the popular series, as beloved by Patty and Selma from The Simpsons, mm, right. uh, that show didn't come around for like another sort of five, ten years after. Oh, okay. I have a feeling I handed Michael Pate a glass of wine once. Really? Yeah. How did you come across one Michael Pate? Uh, was it, a, it was at some function. I was at it, some outdoor event. It was a poet's picnic i think <laughs> many years ago and yeah. he said and I, my memory was like boy is there more wine um <laughs> but i'm pretty sure that's not what happened i do remember him passing him a glass of wine at one point so there you go that's my michael pate story everyone's got one no, so, i wish i did so everyone knows this show 
Matlock Police. Yeah. No, no one really knows sort of old Australian shows if it's not number 96 or two or three other shows. Okay. So it's not like a manimal or something. No. But I mean, it is a show, if you ask people of a certain age and older, they will know Matlock Police. Okay. It, was, it ran for quite a few years. It was a you know, beloved bit of Australian entertainment. Do you know if we are going to start getting more of these um, celebrity appearances? Other people sticking their heads out the window, yeah. like Sammy Davis Jr. in this one. I was pretty mm. excited about that. I think there's either nine or 11 of them over the course of the series. They should have done that every episode. You'd think they should. Yeah, it's great. It definitely breaks things up. Uh, did we like Sammy Davis Jr. appearing in this one? I love Sammy Davis Jr. What's not to love? I don't, yeah, I don't think there's anything not to like about him. He may have espoused some questionable views at some point on something. Anyway. Possibly. Yeah, there might great. be something not to like. Don't, don't to quote me too heavily on that one. He's part of the, the Rat Pack. Yes. But he's not as fa- he's not. I don't and know. now part of the Bat Pack as well. Yeah, yes. right. Yeah. But do we know his songs like we know Frank Sinatra's songs or Dean Martin? Yeah, could we name five Sammy Davis Jr. songs? I'm not sure I can name what's two. He fam- yeah, what's he famous mm. for singing? I don't know. He actually has a couple of lines from one of his songs in this episode, which I've promptly forgotten. Which, what's that? <laughs> I can't even remember what they are. He just, he, he, when he pops his head out the window, he says a couple of lines of a song as, as he's going back in. And you recognize the song? I recognized it was lyrics. Oh. <laughs> well, he is singing. <laughs> yeah, well, I, but I guess just as a general celebrity, I just like, um, I just like him. I've had warm feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The episode ends with a very rare moment where the actual trap that catches Batman and Robin is related to the theme of the villain. Because usually you'd expect, say, Catwoman, for example, to have a giant thing where she's catching them in like a rat trap or something, just some sort of connected uh, thing to the theme. Very rarely ever happens. But this one, they're in a giant hourglass where sand is dripping down on Batman and Robin's head. Yeah, this is, I think, uh, more than in other episodes, I felt like, there's some real danger here because I, I felt like I could feel them getting suffocated, yeah. which was uh, which was nice. Which which gave birth to one of the greatest lines in anything ever, which is start running around like a squirrel in a cage. <laughs> I, I was watching this episode on the train on the way here and I was laughing out loud in a way that I really wish I hadn't been. It's not really it's not a squirrel in a cage, right? It's like a gerbil on one of those wheels. That's true, right? Is Sorry. it just an improper metaphor? Sorry, are you questioning Batman? Is that what's happening here, Nick? <laughs> no, no, to, to be fair, he, he was in uh, a giant hourglass with sand coming down on him. No. He, he wasn't, like, thinking straight. It was like no. squirrel in a, you know, those small furry animals in, a, in some kind of entrapment. Yeah, no, That's I, what he was thinking. Yeah, after, and squirrel in a cage came out, and that's what we're left with, and it's beautiful. I mean, someone that's been gassed that many times that's should true. have some sort of brain damage also, so I'm sure... That's true. That's we're we're well point. into what season two at this point. So yeah, yeah, he's yeah. been gassed a few times. <laughs> uh, I did like the scene where you've got Batman and Robin dusting themselves down from all the sand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the thing is, that like sand, good. when it gets in your fighting togs, that gets scratchy. So I understand why they were so urgent in getting that sand off them. And that's why Robin doesn't wear pants. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we learned from the origins of Robin not wearing pants, which is obviously fear of sand, mm. uh, we did actually get confirmation in this episode that Aunt Harriet is Dick's aunt. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, we've always assumed that, but this one actually did come out and say. Sometimes you get a sense that it's just an old lady that's wandered onto the set and is, is actually doesn't know that a, a TV show is being filmed. Yeah, she was actually integrated into the plot here a little bit more than I'd expected from the outset. I thought once they brushed her off at the beginning of the two-part, that was the end for her. But she came in for that really interesting scene with Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara, where she was inviting them along to Bruce's birthday surprise party. 
And I found it fascinating at the very end, she ends up saying to them, hey, guys, if you want to bring your wives, you know, they're suddenly welcome. And the two of them just kind of looked like stunned mullets as <laughs> though they didn't really want to address maybe something happening in the room. But thankfully, the bat phone started ringing and they didn't have to, uh, you know, really confess yeah. anything. So obviously they are in a relationship, the two of them. That's the implication, I think. It's seeming obvious. I've suspected for a while but this episode, definitely. And Harriet was far too pleased with that hideous clock that she got Bruce oh, for his birthday. She loved that she clock. She loved it. It's gross. Who's going to put that clock up anywhere? It also Aunt Harriet, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah. It didn't look like an antique clock either. Like It looked like a 1960s no. like, postmodern. It looked little, like it was from the pop, pop art. art. Except, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, do better, Aunt Harriet. I'm going to say that sometimes my seven-year-old watches these episodes mm. with me, and... Um, it's fascinating to watch his reaction because this is obviously a children's show. It's meant for him, but he has been so conditioned by modern superhero movies and TV shows that it's it's antiquated to him. And so when they're in the hourglass... Sorry, we should say, and your questionable parenting by showing him the most recent Batman films. Oh, yeah, yeah. I show him... I, I've been taking... I've taken him to all the extremely violent films. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, and... So when when uh, the hourglass is being filled up with sand, I, I I put on a very urgent face and voice and I said, "Do you do you think they're going to make it out?" And he kind of rolled his eyes and said, "Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure they're going to make it out." I was so disappointed. He does he's yeah, it's just lost on him. That's a shame. Yeah, innocence shame. is gone. I know, his innocence yeah. is gone. Yeah. Zack Snyder took yeah, your yes. child's innocence. <laughs> That's like the so, headline right there. Like so many. <laughs> oh man. Now, there was one thing that really stood out, I think, to everyone in the room here. Uh, Commissioner, actually, Richard, please, uh, if you'd like to explain the questionable bit of dialogue from one Commissioner Gordon. Well, there's a, there's a pivotal plot involving a helicopter, but Commissioner Gordon's pronunciation is helicopter. <laughs> I went back and rewound it like two or three times, so I wasn't entirely <laughs> sure if he'd said that. He said helicopter at least once, but maybe more. Was it a different kind of helicopter? I don't know. Maybe he, I don't know what he's used to flying about, in, but Apparently, it's a helicopter. It's, it reminded me of Mr. Burns, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the accelerator. The five o'clock helicopter is arriving any moment now. Right. Yeah. I did feel we got more of a performance out of him in this episode than most. Like, usually it feels like he's going through the motions. You've got Stanford Rep, who plays Chief O'Hara, and he gives it his all. He's got his racist yeah. accent, he busts it out, and he delivers a great performance every time. And then you've got Gordon right next to him, of whom, like, it's just this flat, just rote performance every week. But this week, he delivered. Neil Hamilton gave it his all. Hmm. What about that bit where he gets shot, where, or he he's he's got a pain in his side, and he falls off a bridge? That episode. Oh, that was the bookworm episode. It's great acting. Yeah. Great acting. It's rare. The biggest thing for me in this episode was, it just occurred to me that I think the Batmobile looks a lot like the car that Homer designs yes. when he visits his brother and ruins him in, um, I forget what the episode is called. but he, uh, he Brother, can you spare me two dimes? Yes. And so that car is a monstrosity, but it, it's, it's shaped very similarly. I believe the car had a name. Is it the Homer? It's the Homer. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was a big deal for me. We'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> and Homer is a well-established Batman fan. That's right. Mm. So I think there's a connection there. So, uh, Richo. I, I, I really hope that doesn't catch on, <laughs> Batman Land listeners. It'll be fine, Richie. <laughs> <laughs> who, um, double question, who is your Batman of all the 
Batman. You can include the Lego Batman if you like, of mm-hmm. all, in all the TV shows and movies and all the various iterations. Comics, merchandise. And what does Batman mean to you? Interesting. Um, I guess my I was thinking about this when I really started, you know, thinking about Batman as a character who wasn't just, you know, whoever was in front of me at the time. And I remember in 1989 when the first Tim Burton Batman movie came out. There was this little featurette that they must have played on TV that was talking about the history of the character and how we got darker over time. And that was the first time it clicked, and I was at that age where it clicked that, oh, Batman isn't a character who was just in the movies and TV. He's been around forever. So for me, that was kind of a pivotal point. So I, I kind of start thinking about Batman. My origin of Batman is is with the Burton Batman, although it's certainly not my favourite. What's um, your favourite? It's a hard one, though, because for me, a lot of the Batman... I, I guess it would probably be the, uh, the Bruce Timm animated series is probably the one that I uh, I like the most in terms of TV shows. Which which one is that? Aren't there a That's few the, iterations of the so animated series? So the very first series, animated right? series that came on not long after those Burton films, so early okay. 90s. That's right. so probably the definitive kind of non-comic book version for me. Okay. Um, I do love the Nolan films. I do have some problems with the Nolan films. But like what? What are your problems? Get it all out. Get it well, all out. An abbreviated version. We don't have that much time. Uh, well, I actually didn't like the third uh, film much at all, uh, even though a lot of people love that one. Um, it's far too many coincidences, far too many uh, uh, giant gaping plot holes. Can I just say, at some point, Bruce Wayne has come back from his exile, painted a giant, you know, batarang on the side of a building in gasoline, presumably. Just so we could light it up at the appropriate moment. Yeah. You know, why is this happening? Why are we not talking about well, the, this? Well, I can tell you why. The League of Shadows, theatricality and um, intimidation, right? Isn't that the part of their... Uh... Time seemed to be of the essence. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we learn... What, is he up on a scaffolding somewhere, <laughs> painting this thing? Did he get Alfred to do it? And that's when Alfred came out and said, I failed you. I failed you. I didn't get the final <laughs> wing in. Um, there was an episode of 66 <laughs> Batman we watched just a few weeks ago where Batman and Robin had organized for netting to be put around the side of a building just in case Catwoman and her yeah. goons threw them out the window. Yeah, I've got no problem with that, though. I Batman actually... says always be prepared. Always be prepared. That's true. I, I guess the second film in the in the Nolan trilogy, I had an issue with the, the climax because it's just t- two groups of people we haven't met before on a boat. and You weren't invested in that. I wasn't um, invested. Where's Batman and the Joker fellow gone? Why do you hate nautical Gothamites? <laughs> That's true. My main problem with that second one, mm. which I like the most after Batman Returns, yes. is is the hero we deserve stuff. I always hate it when little, the good guy later. has to pretend to be the bad guy. So yeah. I just don't buy it. It, it's, it's, and it's, I don't like it. It's a tough one. I mean, the thing is, because I've, I've sort of gone in and out of Batman over the years. I do like the animated ones because they do have that level of fidelity. I'm a comic book guy first, so I kind of like the ones that, that explore the comic book stuff a little bit more detail. So that's why I've enjoyed the animated things over the years. In terms of the live-action ones, um, I still think that the first Nolan film is actually closer to what I wanted in a Batman movie out of all of them. Okay. And it's probably the one that I'll return to the most. Right. But my kind of definitive uh, TV version has got to be the the Bruce the, the Bruce Tim animated series from the nineties. So okay. That's me. Yeah. And the first animated film being Batman: Masters of the, the Phantasm, Phantasm. Mm. which is a spin-off from the TV show. That's probably the most pure Batman movie mm. so that we've seen so far. Well, what do you make of these um, the animated versions of the graphic novels? You know how they do a few of yeah. those. They're very popular, aren't they? Some of them have been good. The Killing Joke was a massive misstep because it's not particularly in 2016-17 when it 
came out, it's not the sort of story that you want to touch. Like, it's a very... The politics of it are different. It's very dark. Story. Yeah, and they were at the time. They were in the 80s when it came out. And I think bringing it out 30 years later is not a great idea, particularly when you're being so faithful to it. The uh, Dark Knight Returns, a lot of people kind of have been remaking Frank Miller's Batman for the last 30 years. Then so actually going ahead and making a, a, an animated version of it Worked quite well, but maybe not as well as uh, as it could have because they took out some of the essential elements of the book, which is Batman's voice right. going through it. So what's your... If you're... So I was going to say, there's actually a good one, which is the Batman Year One, which is That's really quite, quite good, good if good. you haven't read the book. But it's so faithful to the book that I mm. think it kind of loses all life and just vitality on the screen. Yeah, I agree. It's a problem with any adaptation, really, isn't it? You know, you make it too faithful to the book. If you love the book, then you're thinking, what's the point? Mm. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, then it feels like a book on screen, which is not necessarily the pace that you want as a cinema goer. We don't get too deep. Well, depends on who the guest is, I guess. But we, but without alienating the non-comics fans mm. of the audience. But what, what era of comic, of Batman comics is your was your introduction, and what made you get into Batman? I started reading comics in the early '90s, I guess late '80s, early '90s, and uh, everything was going wrong for every hero at that point superman died batman had his bat broken so that was my introduction the whole bane you know broken bat thing which ironically was the uh uh, what they did uh for the so uh, what did you think of tom hardy's um interpretation i actually quite like tom hardy as the villain i love him you know i think he was he was really good in that bane is not my problem with that film uh he's 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 a great villain you know voice included everything about that was wonderful yeah no, right, I love that's that. good to hear. Yeah, because a lot of people hated it. Yeah, and yeah. if I had a cup nearby, I'd bust out my bane. but yeah, I, yeah. I won't. Yeah. Now this episode did deal with the Clock King, which is a Green yes. Arrow villain. Um, how familiar were you with Clock King, sort of broadly? So I mean, we know he's got a clock for a head, but is he a villain <laughs> that you really sort of gave much consideration of generally? No, no, they didn't even in the in the books. They didn't give him much consideration for a couple of decades. He was one of those pop up villains of the month kind of characters, or villain of the week. Uh, that turned up every every possible. You almost sit around the writing, you know, sit around the writers' room looking at objects, going, "Let's have the Couch King. Let's have the the, you know, the TV Bandit. Let's have chair, the, the chairman, the chairman, you know, chairman man." Um, <laughs> and and uh, you'd you'd have these characters pop up once, maybe twice if they were popular, and then mm. just disappear. You'd never see them again. Clock King was one of the few exceptions that did come back many years later. Uh, and turned up in the Arrow TV series as well, um, and I think the Flash as well. There was uh, with the with the original character's name, which was even worse than what we've got in the Batman sixty six of William Tockman. Oh. William Tockman. Wow. So take that. What was her name? Uh, timepiece. Time. Uh, timepiece. Thelma. Timepiece. Oh, of course. Can you tell me something about the Green Arrow that I that I should know? So I, I've always I've never mm. really been into Green Arrow. Um, I've always found it weird that there are two members of the justice league the dc universe prominent heroes that have that are green yeah him and green lantern i think that's a serious problem it, it, look it, i take your point uh they only had so many colors to play with uh <laughs> in the in the 40s 30s and 40s uh I mean, so. when you're creating a story and if you uh create two characters with the that whose names begin with the same first initial you know you have to change it right away because it gets confusing for people and yet here we have the green arrow and the Green Lantern. Well, fun fact, they worked together a lot in the 60s and 70s. In uh, fact, the Green Arrow character becomes only really vital once that team-up starts happening. Is Correct. that right? Yeah. 
Uh, you can read chapter three and four of my book. Uh, Sorry, but... we, should, we should sort of explain that. So <laughs> when the Green Arrow first came along, it was a character that was more or less a Batman ripoff. As Very you said, much. he had yeah. things like the Arrow Cave, the, you know. And a vast array of trick arrows were his kind of utility belt, basically. He's, here, he's a rich guy vigilante. He was, a, he was exactly, he was a billionaire <clears throat> vigilante with his young ward, uh, Roy mm. Harper. Who wears a little domino mask the same way Robin does. Yeah, Did sort of. they also have a, a questionable relationship? Yes, yes. Jesus. Yeah. Um, but then the 70s come along and they team up Green Arrow with Green Lantern. Which is a, a series called Hard Travelling Heroes, which I'd love to see them do in some form or another in TV or film. Basically, they travel across America trying to solve social ills. And um, it, it, it is the most, you know, left-wing kind of comic that oh, you're going to really? get. And, it's, and that's probably one thing a lot of people don't know. It's that this character who had no identity whatsoever for the first 30 years of his life suddenly got this massive political conscience in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, thanks to a writer named Denny O'Neill, who was also reinventing Batman around that time to kind of shifted away from the the campiness of batman 66 interesting so all these things were kind of happening at the same time big it was called relevancy in comics and they kind of so that sort of made this angry bearded guy who was totally left-wing and then by the time you got to the 80s when everything kind of went a little bit crypto fascist you got frank miller's batman and you got a green arrow who was hanging out in the the rainy streets of seattle with a hood up and that's kind of the one that sort of makes his way to tv these days yeah, so if you want to find the origins of that, it's a series by Mike Grell called mm. The Longbow Hunters, which is really right. worth a read, I think. Yeah, it's only yeah. like three issues. It's it's readily available in uh, trade paperback stuff, so you can... Yeah, but the 70s up. Green Arrow, I think, is probably the most interesting incarnation of it, because you do have him teamed up with Green Lantern, who seems to be a very sort of traditional Republicanish sort of uh, character mm. when positioned against the Green Arrow character. But they start looking at a lot of social issues at the time and actually give Speedy a drug addiction. Yeah. Where he finds out that Speedy's hooked on the on the gear. Well, his name was probably a giveaway. You'd imagine. You know, that he'd be Speedy. He's, and he actually has the, the front cover, which they fought really hard to get, um, is him busting in on Speedy with his kit in front of him, ready to shoot up, saying, you know, my ward Speedy is a junkie. And uh, the issue plays out with him not being terribly understanding about said said addiction. Yeah. One yeah. of my um, favorite things about 60s comics and, car- and mm. heroes that have started in the 60s is um, how much racism there is in those, oh, co- yeah. in those old comics. It's hilarious. And oh, I'm yeah. wondering, I'm just trying to have a quick look, but are, does Green Arrow have any um, questionable views on... Um... <laughs> During the war he did. Uh, there was a lot of uh, questionable views on the Japanese during the yes. war. Yes. Most comic book they characters all did. did. Yeah. Yeah. He was the one that very much made uh, race front and you know front and center in the comics, and actually was very much uh, certainly for comic books was really progressive views on uh, social equality. So there's actually an argument at the start of that whole Green Arrow Green Lantern run where you have a character coming up to him, a, a man on the streets going, hey, uh, man, I see you doing a lot out there for the different alien races. What about for the different races of Earth? You're not doing anything for the black man. Right. And that's where the whole thing kicks off. And it's them just, you know, Green Arrow taking Lantern across America going, this is what's wrong. You know, the law isn't always right. To be fair, I'm seeing a lot of moments where Green Lantern was racist, but not Green, yeah. not Green Arrow so much. Green Lantern's a little bit conservative. He's basically a, a intergalactic space cop. So you take that dynamic, you have, you know, the cop being teamed up with someone who's a man of the people and uh, take them across the country. Does that man of the people thing happen in the show? 
Uh, no, I really want it to. He's, he's a little bit too bad. The funny thing is that the TV version of Green Arrow is basically Batman. They've even got, like for the first couple of seasons, they've even got Ra's al Ghul as oh. the villain in one of the uh, the seasons, okay. which is bringing this background. They, it's basically they're doing 70s Batman, but as a TV show with Green Arrow because they couldn't do a Batman TV show. And I find it really unsatisfying as a result of that because it's a character yeah. that's not really true to what the essence of the character is now. And the actual character itself, I just think, is far more interesting and fascinating. And then you look at the comic books which came out at the time where often the thing with comics is they try to reflect what's happening in the large pop cultural moments. So mm. if there's a TV series or a movie, the comics try to reflect what's happening there Very to much. a degree. And so when they rebooted the Green Arrow comics, they made him essentially the TV version of it. Yeah. But then after a few years, they realized that no one really cared about that character yeah. and just moved him straight back to being that 1970s goatee, politically aware uh, superhero. Very much so. They even put some of the characters from the TV show into the comics, which was weird for comic book readers. Uh, the TV show I have a love-hate relationship with. Um, it is Green Arrow. I do love it. And I do love the fact that there's all these Batman villains turning up in there because, you know, I know them from shows like this and I know them from shows like from the, from the comics and from other, from other medium as well. But uh, unfortunately, it, you're right, it isn't Green Arrow. And they didn't even call him Green Arrow until the fourth season, maybe. He was the Hood, or the Vigilante, and eventually Arrow. Yeah. Um, tell us about your book a bit, because it's a really yeah. interesting project. So the book came out about August this year. Uh, it'll be available in comic book stores uh, in January. Um, it's called Moving Target, The History and Evolution of Green Arrow. And it started out of just a love of the character. Um, I was doing a podcast a few years ago called Behind the Panels. And we started doing a few, you know, each, each, each week we did, we concentrated on a different, you know, famous comic. And we did a few, I, you know, pushed a few Green Arrow ones and started writing a few articles for the web. And I couldn't find all the information I wanted in one place. So I thought someone really needs to write a history of Green Arrow. So I thought, hey, I'm someone. <laughs> uh, so I pitched it to, to Sequart, uh, who had published a friend of mine, uh, did a book on Daredevil a few years ago, which is wonderful. Uh, if you can get your hands on that, um, should be available online. And it's uh, by a guy named Ryan K. Lindsay. So I pitched it to, he gave me the contact for the uh, publisher and I pitched it to them and they said, yeah, wonderful, sounds great. Um, so I started work on this thing and, and really I'd had a lot of this stuff rattling around in my head for years, but the, the process was really going back and reading everything from 1941 through to 2016 when I stopped, uh, when I stopped reading mm. uh, comics at the start of that and then you know the process of uh, writing was full-time after that. So it, it, it is, it is a, I think, a pretty comprehensive history, but it's uh, not always a... Uh, I don't always look at the character with adoration. I certainly uh, point out some of those racist moments or point out some of those, uh, you know, slightly less than satisfying moments in the recent comics and recent uh, TV series as well. And it's not just you. You've got some contributions in there for some very well-known people. So people who know comic books know a lot of the names and contributors mm. here. Well, so uh, Phil uh, Hester was... Uh, who did the uh, artwork on Kevin Smith's run. Okay, now, Kevin Smith, uh, who unfortunately I didn't get a chance to speak to uh, for this, who I think he probably, an interview with Kevin Smith probably would have filled a whole book by itself. Yeah. But um, Phil Hester did the forward for me, and uh, he was, that was wonderful. But uh, names like Neil Adams and Brad Meltzer um, are people who are known 
outside of the comic book world as well. Neil Adams, a lot of his stuff has been made into – his Batman run has basically been made into a lot of the different versions of uh, Batman that you'll see on TV and in films. Um, he was very much responsible for moving the character away from that campy 60s version. Brad Meltz is a novelist outside of this run as well. But people like Chuck, Dick, Chuck Dixon, who very much on the right wing. Is their, that right? Yeah, their politics. He always says, you know, I like to keep my politics and my comics separate, but he doesn't. Um, he's the creator of Bane. Uh, there's that connection again. Mm. Uh, so he, at his height, was writing, I think, a dozen DC titles during the 90s. But uh, what's he, the yeah? What's the politics of Bane? Politics of Bane is interesting. I, I, I don't know about specifically about Bane. He is. He broke uh, out of prison. Broke out of prison. I think he was originally. He's, he's a Jew, sir. He is. Uh, I think he's got Hispanic origins. I think originally. Yeah. Yeah. He came from uh, Santa Prisa. There you the go. Prison. There you go. And uh, so he came, and, and he's a juicer who who broke the Batman's back. So I don't know if he specifically is espousing one of Chuck Dixon's views, but he certainly stopped working for DC for a while because of those views. But he's back now, writing Bane again. Okay. Um, so. It's worth noting as well, if you want to check out some Batman comics from the 90s, like his work really was, I think, the definitive 1990s Batman. He is. He degree. was writing most of them at that time. And that's and, when you get all those kind of stuff that Nolan, the later Nolan films, is based on. Yeah. Uh, it's from those 90s run. Uh, he also was the one that launched the Robin comic book. Yes, yeah. Uh, he did Robin comic book. He did The Birds of Prey. He launched that as well, which was uh, a short-lived TV series, uh, which teamed up um, Black Canary, a really weird version of Black Canary, Huntress, and the Oracle. Yeah. Uh, long-time Batman Land listeners would know Nicholas Scott, who was on our second or third episode. Oh, yeah. That's right. And she was the artist on that Birds of Prey book. Uh, just yeah. at the time, roughly after, I think, Dixon had just finished. and Yeah, she wrote with... Uh, she did the yeah, art Gail with Gail Simone. Simone. Yeah. So, mm. no, I've spoken to Nicola a few times about that run, and no, definitely one of my favorite runs. But. Are you a DC exclusive type person, or are you um, all over the place? You I'm like all over Marvel the place. And, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I mostly read DC. And I, I, the funny thing is, film-wise, I, I much prefer the Marvel output, though yeah. I'm not certainly not alone on, the, on that. Yeah. And I have gone back. And I, I, look, I do read a lot of things. I do have an extensive, I have an extensive library. Um, Sorry, what are your thoughts on Hawkeye as a character? The, look, I tell you what, if you want to read, I think Hawkeye is actually... Uh, a fa- fabulous character in the right hands. If you want to read an amazing book, Matt Fraction did a run uh, in the last two years where he just made him an everyman character who was just being constantly beleaguered by various ex-girlfriends, by uh, the mob, by all these uh, sorts of things. Wonderful series, wonderful series. If they made that into a Netflix series, it would be the greatest thing uh, in the world. Very rarely does he pull an arrow in this in this run, but you know, still very yeah. different characters though. Although, I used to, he, although he totally ripped off Green Arrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it a rip off? Because there's lots of similarities between different uh, heroes in the different universes. Oh, of course right? there are, but everyone's inspired by someone else. I mean, you know, because like Sh- Shazam must be a Shazam Marvel. Shazam was originally uh, uh, Fawcett Comics. Yeah, and, and they got, got bought, bought out by DC. by DC. Yeah. All oh, right. Somebody's like Superman. Who's like Superman in Marvel? There's a few. There was uh, there was Miracle Man. There was um, I'm trying to think who was who was because uh, Marvel came along much later. But well, look, the question would be who did Superman of... fight when Marvel fought against DC? And oh yeah, it was the Hulk they seemed him up with. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I suppose the the Superman equivalent in in Marvel's got to be Cap, right? He's like a superhuman. He's That's like right. the the basically the the human flag. Yeah, right. Which, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Superman is yeah, kind yeah. of truth justice in the American way. 
what's uh what's next for you what kind of what kind of book would you write next Oh, I'll just do a on history of the elongated man or something obscure. No, look, I, I really man, uh, that's going to sell even less copies. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'll buy one, but <laughs> <laughs> actually, no, I've, I've, I was going to do something on the the creator of, of Green Arrow, which was just because he actually edited Superman during the crazy years for like thirty years, which was you know when you get all those things like Super Chimp and and you know fourteen different types of Kryptonite that could you know all all had really really weird effects. All that was under a guy named Mort Weisinger. It was really weird, and he then became obsessed with beauty pageant in the late 60s early 70s and wrote a book called the contest uh which is this really trashy novel about the behind the scenes look at beauty pageants so i found him a really fascinating guy and i wanted to kind of explore him further i don't think anybody else would find him quite as fascinating as as i do so i'm really interested in actually looking at something on the comics industry now and how it's really gone into a steep decline in the last uh 10 years or so that we're really, they're really not selling, despite the fact you've got these multi-billion dollar films out there, which are effectively big ads for these characters. The comics themselves are not selling. That's See, I always wonder if that's why it's not selling, because yeah. you've got so much ready access to a lot of these superhero stories that there's less of a need really to pick it up in a monthly comic book floppy. And is that is that the future of the characters? I mean, like, you know, like any character, they evolve over time. And maybe, you know, infinite number of Marvel films, infinite number of DC films and TV shows... That's the future of the characters. I'm not going to say everyone's happy with that, but it's definitely a future for the characters. Are you still at, are you still reading as much as you used to? Do no, you? No, no, no. I've definitely slowed down. I've, there's so much, and, and, and possibly uh, uh, for very reasons to Dan mentioned, like, you know, there's so much other media to consume now. I, mm. I, I have my job cut out for me just keeping up with with regular uh, TV shows, let alone. The yeah, superhero right. TV shows and the, and the superhero movies and all those other the, things. The Crown well. is coming back. The Crown is coming back. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we've got we've got the Punisher next week. We've got uh, uh, I'm sure the Good Place will return at some point. <laughs> I um I've I've always been interested. I, I mean, I was a huge reader of comics. Um, I don't think I think my scope was probably much more narrow than both of yours. But um, but at some point I just kind of stopped. And now when I go back, it triggers nostalgia. Mm. But I don't. I'm just not as into it as I as I used to be. Like I I don't know how anyone would get into comics now to be honest. Like I don't know what the entry point is anymore. They keep rebooting these books every couple of years going everyone can join in now. But then what happens 12 issues in when you're up to issue 12 again and it's like, well, that's a year's worth of comics that I have to catch up with now. I, no one's got time for that. Right. Like, I don't know why – I don't know what the entry point is. And that's why I think the appeal of the films are one shot and you're out. You know, you don't have to have seen the first two Thor films to get, you know, fun out of Thor Ragnarok. You know, right. you can you can enjoy that film as a single entity. It's fun. It's fine. But, you know, I think comics for me are still that nostalgia. It's just something that I, I kept up on and off over the course of a couple of decades. But I don't find the same appeal to them that I did years ago. Now I read them for particular writers or I read them for particular characters or I read them for particular artists, not necessarily because of the format. You know? So is there, is there some future in like what Ta-Nehisi Coates did with Black Panther, yeah. like that kind of stunt, like getting a famous person to do some run of a... Yeah, well, it's not new. I mean, part of the reason I got back into to Green Arrow is Kevin Smith did a run, that's right, you yeah. know, almost that's 20 right. years ago, and that's gonna that's gonna keep happening. I mean, that that Tanhasi Coates uh, Black Panther was fantastic, and yeah. I think it's great to get someone like that uh, to bring that voice. Is someone who's 
you wouldn't th- necessarily associate with with comic books at all. Right. You know, he wasn't even a pop culture sort of person. He was he was very much a political commentator coming yeah, in yeah. to write on comics. I think that's that's fantastic. But is it going to get massive amounts of readers to it? No. <laughs> We do like to wrap up the conversation every week with what we learned from Batman this week. Uh, Richard, did you take away any important life lessons from the man with the cow? <laughs> Apart from uh, Robin being too much, <laughs> I think that there's nothing wrong with cracking yourself up with your own jokes as the Clock King did when he discovered the wonderful pun of uh, the boy blunder. <laughs> <laughs> if Batman and the boy blunder... London. Yeah, oh, so I'm, I'm going to make myself laugh more from now on. Nick? Well, aside from appreciating um, how um, there appear to be only now with Sammy Davis Jr., um, mm. approximately five people of color in Gotham City. Uh, well, he was just visiting. I, that's true. He was just in town for that for a gig. <laughs> um, I guess, as opposed to lessons, it was more appreciation because I. I think I feel like there's a lot of mustard clothing being worn on this show, hmm. and I don't think we talk about that enough. So I just wanted to give that a shout out that it's it's just in bringing the mustard sweater back. Yeah, my Batman Land resolution is to really acknowledge that a lot more going forward. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, look, I learned something, and this is after a few episodes where we've seen a number of villains now just break their way into stately Wayne Manor. Oh, yeah, very easy to do. It seems incredibly easy to do. <laughs> and yes, Alfred does have that signal that he's able to trigger from his belts. But is that enough? The lesson I learned this week is a good home security system. It's yeah. a great idea for crime fighters and everyday citizens alike. Absolutely. That's a great lesson. You can't mm. always rely on Alfred to be there. No. no. I mean, as you, as you said, Aunt Harriet even couldn't rely on Alfred no, to be there. No, they're useless. And yeah. if the criminals are going to knock anyone out, Alfred's always the first guy to go down. Right. Every time. Anyway, this brings us to the end of another Batman Land. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, I just want to thank very much Richard Gray for coming in. Richard, you've got a number of things happening. You can find your book, uh, Moving Target, The History and Evolution of Green Arrow. Yep, you can find that most uh, booksellers. You can find it through uh, sequart.org, S-E-Q-U-A-R-T.org. Find me on therealbits.com. And also you're a regular contributor to Newsarama, which is one of the internet's biggest comic book news and reviews websites. Correct, yes. I I contribute to Best Shots, which is their weekly uh, uh, news and reviews. Yeah. Uh, oh, and also you're on Twitter people can oh, find you there hit me up on Twitter DVD Bits I'm at Nick Bassey. and people can find me at the Dan Barrett if you're talking about Batman Land on the internet please use the hashtag Batman Land helps people find it if you've liked the podcast leave a review helps other people find the show so take a moment on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice we'll be back next time and don't forget you can check out Batman every Friday night on SBS Viceland at roughly about 730 Folks, we'll catch you next week. 